Hey everyone, this is Morgan Lee, the host of Quick to Listen, and I wanted to tell you about a new podcast that I have been working on for the past couple months called Prayer Amid Pandemic. I really love this podcast. Each week we are telling stories of Christians who have lived all throughout church history and how their lives and faith have been shaped by disease and illness. It's great. Today, we will be sharing one of the most recent episodes of Prayer Amid Pandemic in the Quick to Listen feed. And in particular, this episode is about Julian of Norwich, who I think is a really fascinating character. Some of you guys may know her for her lines, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. I did too, and that was pretty much all I knew about her. This podcast was great because we got a chance to understand who this person was a little bit more. And also at the end of each show, we get to pray with other believers around the world, which I have been meeting so many of them in some recent trips for CT. And I'm so glad that you'll get to hear their voices on the podcast. Give it a listen. This is Prayer Amid Pandemic, a podcast to encourage and sharpen the church through telling stories of Christians whose faith was shaped by sickness and by praying with fellow believers around the world. I'm Morgan Lee. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That these 17 words were uttered by a woman named Julian of Norwich may be the only thing you know about this 14th century English saint. Historians don't necessarily know that much more. We're not even sure her real name. So why do we remember her? Julian of Norwich. So Julian of Norwich, we know she was born around 1342. And around 1373, she received visions that she perceived to be clearly visions from God. Amy Laura Hall is the author of Laughing at the Devil, Seeing the World with Julian of Norwich, and has been a Christian ethics professor at Duke Divinity School since 1999. And she wrote a short text writing about what she saw. And then over the course of years and years, she thought through, prayed through, considered what she had seen and then wrote a longer text. Why do we know so little about her? There are other women uh, around this time who who write more autobiographically. But Julia Norch, that's not how she wrote. So we don't know that much about her in part because she didn't write about herself. She wrote about God's visions, the visions from God that she received. And that's, though those visions are why we continue to read her today. What do we know about Julian's relationship with pain and sickness, and how does that show up in her writing? Okay, so she receives the visions in the midst of what an illness that at the time people around her, she herself could have thought was a recurrence of the Great Plague, which she was about seven or eight years old, somewhere around there, when the Great Plague had come through Western Europe and England. So the the records during this time, and in part because it was so such a horrifyingly devastating 
um, pandemic, scholars have some trouble figuring out exactly how many people died because people were dying quickly and they were dying unshriven. They were dying unaccounted for uh, in church records. So but between 30 and 60 percent or so of Europe's population was killed by some estimation. Half of the population in Norwich itself died during the plague. So this was during Julian's childhood. And they didn't know at the time, of course, that this was this was the Great Plague and it wasn't going to be recurring. By the time she was around the age, around the age of 30, we think is the time that she received these visions on what could have been her deathbed, what she did she didn't know if she was going to survive and those around her didn't either. And she does she does write some about that. And in the midst of this illness, she asks to be brought together with God in the passion. And this is, it's, it's, it's complicated and it's historically, it's important to think about, about her visions within her own historic context. It was not unusual at this time for people who wanted to be as close as possible to God to ask God to bring them into the passion of Jesus Christ because it is within Julian's theology, within her visions, the passion of Jesus Christ, the the cross is where God is bringing all of time, all of the universe, all of creation into God's self. I find it to be one of the most fascinating and important things about her vision is her is her sense of time and how all that is is brought into the point of the cross. So so she receives that vision. It's really interesting. This is in the short text. She's she's trying to decide where to look. She's she's in she's in bed. She's trying to have a sense of where where to focus her meditation and she focuses on the crucifix and she receives a a word to just stay focused on the crucifix. Do not look away from the cross. So she's focused on this simple crucifix. And it's in the midst of this that she laughs at the devil. She receives a, a, a kind of uh, what people around her might have thought was completely bizarre, but she receives this this laughter. She says that she writes that, that those around her did, were not laughing, but she receives this laughter at the fiend himself and the safety. She says that it's within the point of the cross that she sees the safety of all that has been and all that will be. I'll point out that that the point, the word point in the Middle English can mean a point in space, like a geographic point, and a point in time. And that I need to make note, that's Elizabeth Spearing's note in her translation with the Penguin Edition. She points this out. She, she gives notice. She focuses our attention on the fact that Julian receives a vision of all that was and all that will be through the point of space and time that is the cross. So as we're diving into Julian's theology right now and the type of stuff that she's seen in these visions, I was wondering if we could just hear from Julian herself 
in her own words, writing about this? I'll read you one of my very, very favorite. There's so many. I mean, I I really encourage people to order the Penguin Edition. I, I can give you also recommendations for, for further reading. But here's one of my one of my favorite quotes from her, which inspired me to coin a, a new word. <laughs> so here we go. This is from the Penguin edition, the Spearing Translation. Though the three persons of the Trinity are all equal in themselves, my soul understood love most clearly. Yes, and God wants us to consider and enjoy love in everything. And this is the knowledge of which we are most ignorant. For some of us believe that God is almighty and has power to do everything, and that he has wisdom and knows how to do everything, but that God is all love and is willing to do everything, there we stop. Wow. I love that. Can I just say a few more things about that? Please. I remember when I was reading her the first time, it struck me that I'd been taught all my all my childhood to believe in God's omnipotence, uh, God's being all powerful. Yes, definitely, I understood that that was true, or at least I was supposed to understand how that was true. But what what Julian inspired me to try to think through is what does it mean to believe that God is omniamitous? So, what does omniamity mean? What does it mean that? that God has all love, that God is omni-loving. So this sense that she receives that God is all-loving, that God is omni-amity, that is what inspired me to try to write a book about what it what it would entail for me to continue to try to see the world alongside Julian of Norwich. I'm curious... Amy, Laura, would you say that Julian's writings have shaped larger church thought when it comes to pain or sickness? My short answer to your question is no, I don't think she has. And I I will say it's hard teaching her with students who've been taught, even some of the many of the women even have been taught that why would you read a little known woman in theology when you haven't read everything that St. Augustine has written? Or why would you read Julian until you'd read everything that John Calvin has written? So it's it's been difficult in teaching, trying to woo students into reading her words. And that comes from my, having taught her for over 21 years now. What do you think, Amy Laura, the church needs to hear from Julian of Norwich today? So, uh, several things. Um, One of the charges against her theology that you can read about, I, I have a whole section in the book. My book is not very long, but I have a section in the book that I worked really hard on to try to explain this charge against her theology. One charge against her theology is that she didn't adequately take account of structural evil, that her visions are anemic, that she she didn't take full account of how 
horrible, how horrifying her time was and how human beings with with power can utterly destroy other people. That's that's a charge that some have brought to her theology. I read her differently. I read her as not addressing structural evil from the top. So not addressing like the princes and kings and archbishops, but addressing the forms of evil that can grow, I say like that can grow like a fungi underneath a repressive system. So within a time of plague, within a time of terror, because I started writing this book uh, soon after 9-11, within a time of fear, one way that some people cope is, is to turn against one another and to see their neighbors as sites of danger and even to see their loved ones as threats to their survival. So one pattern that I am trying to resist as I am reading about our current plague is the pattern to find a group of people who I can separate myself from mentally so that I can feel superior and safe. And I am seeing that pattern in many different ways, not just um, for people who are who like the lieutenant governor in Texas who said things I still can't believe he said, but I'm also seeing, I'm seeing ways that people who can read the fine print on the CDC website can find themselves feeling better and less irrational, more informed and therefore better than people who met at a church soon before, even soon after the shelter in place orders. So I'm, I'm watching how some of us are trying to figure out ways how to mark ourselves, think of ourselves as better than others, and therefore somehow superior and safe during a time when genuinely, now I'm tearing up, I'm sorry. Um, uh, we really need we need to be uh, figuring out how to be together and also to recognize ways that people who are the most vulnerable, people who are in the economic classes who have no choice but to work or else they're not going to be able to buy food at the very grocery store that they're working in. What we're going through is going to require us to be very courageous in our solidarity and to see one another as kin. And to me, Julian's visions are essential for that sense each morning of waking up and recognizing that the world is ultimately more hopeful than fearful and that my neighbors are my neighbors. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Here's the latest coronavirus news in the world and church for the week of April 20th. 
the largest African-American Pentecostal denomination has been hit hard by COVID-19. The Washington Post reported that between a dozen to up to as many as twice as many, that number of church leaders from the Church of God in Christ denomination have died from the novel coronavirus. On Monday, Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp announced that gyms, barber shops, nail salons, tattoo shops, hair salons, and massage parlors can reopen later this week. He also announced that houses of worship will once again be allowed to have services if attendees practice social distancing, although he encouraged call-in, online, and drive-in services instead. This week, Marcos Zapatap, the president of the Spanish Evangelical Alliance, wrote about his experience contracting coronavirus for Christianity Today. If my platform can be used for something, I hope it is at least to ask our Christian brothers and sisters in the Americas to learn from our mistakes in Europe. Sadly, the United States is already living the reality of this pandemic, and I hope our beloved countries in Latin America keep and broaden the measures that they have put in place. We saw the crisis in China, and we said, this is in China, it is far away, and we did not prepare. Then it was in Italy, and we said, it is in Italy, it will not come to Spain. In fact, some soccer fans even traveled to the worst infected area of the neighboring nation to attend a Champions League game. The competition was later suspended and is now irrelevant. Days later, COVID-19 landed in Madrid, and those of us who live in other parts of Spain once again said, this is in the capital, we are safe, and we were not prudent. Finally, it arrived in our city and among our own families. We were slow to react, and we paid the consequences. Please learn from our mistakes and take this pandemic very seriously. Zapatop's article and others can be found at ChristianityToday.com or at the link to all of our coronavirus information in the show notes. The COVID-19 crisis is a global one, so we believe it's important to hear from our sisters and brothers in Christ from around the world. Our prayer today is from Gideon Paramalam in Nigeria. Hi, viewers. My name is Gideon Paramalam, an ordained reverend. I'm president and founder of the Paramalam Peace Foundation, and I live in the city of Jos, Nigeria. Lord God of heaven and earth, God of mercy, God of compassion. Lord, in this period of the coronavirus pandemic, show mercy upon the nations of the world. Show mercy upon my nation, Nigeria. I ask, O oh God Almighty, that you would replace faith instead of fear in the hearts of Nigerians. I pray to, O oh God, that you will open up more testing centers that our medical facilities will be able to cope. Right now, having only five testing centers in a nation of 200 million people is truly scary. God Almighty, I pray concerning the impact of coronavirus on our economy, that Lord, you will have mercy, that those who are less privileged, those on the margins of society, help them, O oh Lord, to be able to afford uh, the basic hygienic facilities to help themselves to stay safe at a time such as this. And for those, O oh God, who cannot have food to eat, precious Lord, touch those who are privileged to be able to provide help for those who need food at a time such as this. I ask to, O oh God, concerning the security situation as it relates to this coronavirus pandemic right now, 
Boko Haram's epic center of attack in the northeastern part of Nigeria, I ask for your divine intervention. I pray for those in captivity right now, that, Lord, you will visit them, protect them, keep them safe uh, at a time such as this. And I ask, O oh, Father, that you would also intervene in our homes. Lord, the possibility of the rise in domestic violence is real as people stay home. But I ask, O oh God, that you will be gracious and touch people, Lord, to be kind and gracious to one another, husband and wife. And I also pray the Lord, as people stay home and reflect through Isaiah 26, 20, my prayer, O oh God, is that you will lead us all to repentance. This is my prayer in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Prayer Amid Pandemic is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, along with Matt Linder, Mike Cosper, and Eric Petrick. Please help us spread the word about Prayer Amid Pandemic by sharing about it on social media or recommending it to your friends. The best way for you to help, though, is by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Our goal is to get to 25 ratings. If you have feedback, please send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We'll see you soon.